welcome to SED. I'm your host, Jane Dagme, Editor-in-Chief of Designers Today. SED covers the wonderful industry of interior design from various, often eclectic, angles. At its most literal, SED is the spoken complement to what's written in the pages of our magazine. Esoterically speaking, SED, S-A-I-D, stands for Something About Interior Designers. In a nutshell, the podcast is devoted to the ongoing curiosity and admiration we have for these diverse, passionate, and often quirky individuals. SED celebrates the way they think, work, live, and define themselves. Enough said. Let's get into our show. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today, my guest is Kia Weatherspoon, founder of the award-winning commercial design firm Determined by Design, and relentless advocate for design equity. When Kia speaks of equitable design, what she's talking about is that everyone, regardless of socioeconomic class or age, has the right to live with dignity in well-designed spaces that make them feel good, safe, and human. To her, design is the ultimate expression of empathy. She said, and I quote, when you create design solutions that disenfranchise or make someone feel they are inferior or less than You are affecting their lives and their trajectory for generations to come. This is not rocket science. This is thoughtfulness and empathy. Kia grew up in Portsmouth, Virginia, and currently lives in Washington, D.C. She wanted to be an Alvin Alley dancer and joined the Air Force so she could afford to get schooled in dance. While she remains a current member of the D.C. Air National Guard, Kia's purpose was shaped by a series of events which she will soon tell us about. The important thing is that she found it. Determined by Design has made a name for itself in affordable multifamily housing and community living. Kia shares the mission of design equity daily with her colleagues and often in the press and on social media. And she has a plan in the works for educating her colleagues, partners, and students all about it. Eight years into leading her own practice, Kia has learned a lot about business and about herself. She can attest to the value of a good therapist and to the freedom she feels in her own skin dancing around her living room. Kia is not holding back. She is the real deal who practices what she preaches unapologetically and is enrolling other professionals in her mission and is busy juggling a lot of projects, working on elevating one community at a time. Whether this is your first introduction to Kia Weatherspoon or you are already acquainted with her, it gives me an inordinate amount of pleasure to share our conversation. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Kia. How are you today? I'm freaking fantastic. How are you? I'm excited. I'm good, too. You know, <laughs> you are always so positive. Like, you just have this incredible positivity. And I was just, you know, before we start talking about business, like, how do you keep it up? Or if you're, you know, like, is it just your natural state? So I, I okay, so I, it is okay. One is a lot of therapy, constant therapy. Yeah. One, <laughs> um, and then two, I think I'm just always cognizant. What I'm doing is bigger than me. Mm. Um, and then three, I was finally able to hone what it meant that something was bigger than me. And it was this book I read last year called A Return to Love by Marianne Wilson. And it was probably one of the best books I've ever read because it talked about doing things from a place of love and not your ego. Mm. 
So number two about what I'm doing is bigger than me. I'm doing what I'm doing because of love of others and understanding and empathy. And I think that's what keeps me kind of always positive. Yes. Um, I do have bad days, but those three things are kind of my my jumping off point. Um, not about me. It's about love and others and empathy. That's so good. Oh my God. It's like, okay, I think we're done now. Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's a really good message for today. Um, goodness. Okay. So I was just, cause yeah, uh, to get out of one's own way is really important and to feel yeah. the bigger, the bigger picture. And I, I totally get what you mean. So, um, all right. So I, when I was doing putting together our October issue. That is when I became aware of you and your business. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you've told your story about your path to design mm-hmm. a lot, but I want you to say it again, because I wasn't even going to, okay. you know, and I wasn't even going to start there. I was going to start sort of in the middle and then go back to it. But I was like, I think it has to set the foundation for the rest of our conversation. So I'd love you to, to, to talk about yes. that. And this is why I don't mind starting there is because our stories matter. Mm -hmm. And I think the more we tell them, the more we realize they matter and they're specific to us. Right. Um, So my and I don't even like to call it my design story. I think it's more so um, things that have led me to my purpose. Right. Right. Um, There were there are two, I think, pivotal moments. Um, and I didn't know they were pivotal until after the fact, which is why it's more purposeful. So the first one is my, my family, we experienced a very big trauma when I was starting high school. And that was my brother, my older brother. He ended up getting incarcerated, uh, when we were young for 15 years. Um, and you have two kind of, um, you know, lower middle class parents, a teacher and an electrician slash alcoholic slash in and out of jail. And then you have my brother who gets caught up in the penal system. And it really just started this trajectory for my family of trauma and then going to visit my brother in prison facilities. Right. And in that process, I, as you know, a loved one really started to think about how indignified the prison system was for me as a visitor. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I hate this. I hate this. I hate coming here. It's so, it's so sterile. It's ugly. It's all these things. Right. right. And then the next year I started thinking about it from the lens of, if I just sat and looked around when I was in that visiting room, the children who were experiencing this. Then I looked around and I, the next year it was the men, the guards. So I was constantly thinking about, how all these other people were experiencing this space. And if it was that bad for me, God, it had to be horrible for them. Right. And no one should experience space like that. So that was a first kind of experience. Um, and then after that, fast forward, I, I go to college to be a ballet dancer. And then a struggle of many folks, I don't get financial aid. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm going to join the military. I'm going to join the military. I'm going to get stationed on the East Coast and I'm going to dance at night. And Uncle Sam will pay for my schooling. So it was very cute, very naive. 
And I ended up getting stationed in Wichita, Kansas. And then a month later, September 11th happened. Mm. And I was on my first of five deployments to the Middle East. And I was at a bear base at Al-Udid Air Base in Doha, Qatar, in a tent with about 14 other women. And I wanted to cry. And I had no privacy. So I took some sheets. I hung it from the top of my tent. And I made three sheet walls. And that was the first space I ever created. And I had balls like a baby for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can't emotional. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And it was something about how that space healed me. It brought me respite, it brought me comfort and solace. Um, And I would do that four more times. I have a question. Yes. Did did the women that you were with, did they also get some some solace and some peace by what you did on their side of the sheet? That's a good question. I don't know. Because it it was almost kind of like, you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? I just needed shelter. Mm -hmm. I needed shelter. And it was literally about putting these three sheet walls, these walls up around me. Now, what did happen, it was kind of like a ripple effect. The rest of the tent ended up putting these sheet walls, right? So it maybe it was, it set the tone of, oh, this is how we can create privacy for ourselves. Right. So it, it, it did it affect them? No. Did it set an example? Yes. Yep. So... No one's ever asked me that before. I love that. Well, I was just curious. Yeah. I mean, wh- you know, and I've never even thought about that all the time that I've, you know, probably the two or three times that I've heard you refer to this, this time in your life where you realize the importance of, of your own space and how it made you feel. So I just, it just came to me. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I love that. And I, so I think I would get out of the military and I was like, you know what, I want to do this thing where I create spaces for people. And I think Google existed. I don't really know, but that's what led me to interior design. Right. And you worked for a hospitality company first? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So so the naivete of, of, of the military, um, you, you get out and you just think you're making it with your whopping $28,000 a year salary as a receptionist. Um, yep. But it instilled in me an amazing work ethic which allowed me to create a position for myself as a design coordinator um, at a hotel management company. Um, And it was probably one of those kind of life-changing moments um, where my first real big girl job, um, I learned how to, one, articulate my worth and value, then double my salary, create a position for myself. Um, Fast forward two years leave that position and be unafraid to walk away when my, my, the perfect type of boss, right? Mm-hmm. Sex is rich, white, older, um, decided to tell me I couldn't further my education and work there at the same time. Oh, So I left. Um, it was the perfect first job. Mm-hmm. Uh, perfect. For so many reasons. Right. Uh, and that was my, my stint in the hospitality space. Um, right out of the military. And when did you go to design school? After that. Okay. So it it was this choice between, you know, I created an opportunity for myself within this company, but I always knew education was, was in my path. I wanted to be a licensed interior designer. I wanted to get a, a fine arts degree in that. And when I couldn't do both, I chose my education and I went to an amazing undergraduate school 
uh, Moore College of Art and Design in Philadelphia, and I got my BFA in interior design. So um, we have to stop right here on Philadelphia because that's my hometown. And, <laughs> and when I heard that you went to Moore, I was like, oh, yes, uh, we need to just have a little a few moments of, oh. of paying homage to the city of brotherly love. Um, yeah. So where did you live when you went to school? Oh, 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 my gosh. So I love it. So when I first moved to Philly, I lived all over. Uh, I lived off in um, off of East Godfrey um, in Northeast. OK, I lived off of Wissahickon in Schoolhouse oh, Lane. Oh, wow, in Germantown. I love that area. I then also lived off of City Line Avenue, right near the Fridays that used to be Honey, there. And that's I, still there. I, I lived like right there. <laughs> right, right. And then I, I closed out Philly living on campus uh, because this city is Morris campus. And I lived at 19th and Race, um, dead smack uh, in the middle of the city. And it was so glorious. Um my time in Philadelphia. So glorious. How many years did you live there? So I lived in Philly for eight years. Wow. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And this is what I loved about Philly. Um, and I'm in DC now. Um, you could just be who you were, right? You didn't have to try to pretend to be anyone else or fit into this mold. It allowed you to flourish with your own identity and your own character um, people always say like, oh, Philly is gritty. It's dirty. I'm like, no, it's authentic. Mm. It's not trying to be anything but the people who make up a dynamic city. I adore Philadelphia. Adore. Uh, have you done adore. any work there? Oh my God. Yes. Um, so I've done, um, we worked on Uncle Bobby's. It is a black owned coffee shop and bookstore. Um, in Germantown, and it's by Mark Lamont Hill, and it it was the perfect project that speaks to the mission of my company all around design equity. Mm -hmm. Everyone told him, you cannot open a bookstore and a coffee shop in a poor neighborhood, and they literally just celebrated their three-year anniversary um, last week of bringing culture, books, literacy back to Black communities. That's awesome. So it was one of the perfect types of projects for me to work on um, because a lot of small business owners don't think they should utilize the interior designer. They don't know they should, the value it brings, and that it's not enough to just have the create the brick and mortar space. You have to create the experience. Another thing that I learned about you was that one of your first jobs, I think when you, when you did open up your own company, yes. one of the first things that you did was a pro bono um, mm -hmm. project for a women's shelter. So, so domestic violence survivors. Yes. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about that Ab and what you learned? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I, I quit my, my job at a design firm cause I was burnt out and I had no idea what I was doing. And the first opportunity that presented itself to me was to do a nonprofit project for domestic violence survivors. And everyone is like, wait, you quit your job with no money. And then the first project you do is for free. <laughs> Naivete is bliss, right? Mm -hmm. But again, life leads you to your purpose. So I do this nonprofit project. It's for domestic violence survivors. It's through an organization called Room to Rebloom, 
where they partner designers um, with domestic violence survivors and create healing home environments for them. So the first project that I did with him was a 12-unit transitional housing building for 12 women and 32 children. And I go in there very exuberant, if you can't imagine. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) And these women are like, one, calm down. Um, And two, they said, we don't need this. And I could have been taken aback, Mm -hmm. but I was more so concerned. I was like, wait, they don't realize the power that design can bring to their lives, to their healing, their solace, right? Their comfort, things that I had experienced at this point, maybe 10 years ago in the military. Oh, this mattered. So for me, it was very, very important that we immerse these women in the design process and go through it step by step with them, not for them, but with them. Okay. And in doing this project with them, we did a couple things and we saw a couple language shifts. We saw the women say from, we don't need this to, oh my God, somebody would do this for us. I thought I could only see this stuff on TV. Is this something I could do today, right? And when people think about design, they think about the big reveal and the pretty picture. And we had that moment, the big reveal and the pretty pictures. But the moment was when a woman said to me, Miss Kia, when I walked into this room, I realized change was possible for me. Mm -hmm. Right then I knew the people who need access to well-designed spaces They don't know they don't have it. They don't know they need it and they don't have an advocate for it. Right. So I built my entire practice around being an advocate for those who don't have access to well-designed spaces. So it wasn't just about a free project. It was a project that set the trajectory for my my business. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's powerful. You mentioned the word trajectory, and I was thinking about if you're if you looked at your business, you opened it in 2012, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I was looking at a graph of your business from then till this year, like what does it look like? Like were there peaks? Were there you know downward bits? <gasps> was it smooth? Like what does it look like, and and Ooh. how has it sort of you know evolved? Oh, I love it. So I think years one through six, it just, it's constantly peaked, right? Um, Year, it was, it was steady, steady growth from a revenue perspective, from a client perspective to a project perspective. It was steady growth. I think I doubled year over year, right? It was, I think, doubled and tripled, right? Now. Mm -hmm. Year six, seven, ooh, we took a deep dive because I started shooting all over myself. Well, I should have this many people. Mm. I should have this fancy office. I should, 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 should. I felt like I should do what everybody else was doing. And I think I kind of lost myself mm-hmm. and I started to get burnt out and feel boxed into my business again. 
taking on projects I didn't want to do because I had this team um, and it was my first time managing people. And the secret people keep to themselves is that managing people is not fun. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've never managed people to now managing four in a fancy office and work you didn't want to do, you burn out really quickly. And that's when I kind of took this more of a personal downward um, trajectory. And then also this understanding of, I, I like to say this all the time, cash flow is queen. And as a service providing business, being mindful of your cash flow and savings, these are all things I did not know or no one talked about mm-hmm. because I'm a first generation entrepreneur in my family. Yep. So I didn't have this acumen. Right. So in year six into seven, I really felt it. Um, and that's when my mental health deteriorated. Um, mm-hmm. And I realized how intertwined my mental health was to the success of my business and me as a person. Right. 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 Um, so year seven into eight, which is where we are at now. Oh, it's so sweet. So sweet. I completely got rid of my old team. I completely got rid of my overhead of this big office space. And thankfully, right, this was all Mm pre-COVID. So my team has always been remote and virtual. um, So we didn't have to really adjust. We've hired three new people this year. We have gotten eight new projects since the start of the pandemic. We are on a trajectory to have doubled our revenue from 2020, from 2019 into this year, 2021 on the books already, we have a third of what we made in 2020. Mm-hmm. It's very sweet right now. Mm. Very sweet. You know, every every good story has that sort of incline and then a, a, a deep sort of drop, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. where you, you know have some reckoning and and things like that. So. No, that's, that's, that's what makes, no, that's that's what makes you stronger and that's business. And that's just, uh, very interesting. Wow. Um, so pulling yourself out of that, pulling yourself out of that space, um, was, I'm sure a very, uh, well, like you talked about the book that you read and in therapy and, and, um, getting out of your own way to sort of get successful again the work that you're meant to do. And and that's the part no one likes to talk about. Mm. You know, it's kind of like, oh, where you're this leader, you must be perfect and you must be have it all together. Mm -hmm. No, no. And it's just like, I remember I walked into this new client meeting um, and it for like an exploratory um, project. And and I walked in and and the, the man goes, oh my God, your presence is just amazing. And I was like, honey, that's 10 months of solid therapy. And people be like, is that something you say in a business meeting or at the start? But why not? Right. Because what it showed him is what business one-on-one is they got to like you to do business with you. And they have to know exactly who you are as a leader and what you're getting. And right off the bat, I showed him I'm transparent. I'm sound, right? And I'm going to be a pleasant person to work with. And we just happen to do great work. right? So no one talks about 
the more personal and people aspect of being a leader. People got to see you. And to see you, you got to be so comfortable in your own skin. You can show up exactly as who you are. I actually love that. I mean, to me, that's that's what inspires me. I mean, it's it's always the people angle. And you got to get a little bit deep with people because otherwise it just all sounds the same, you know? And Absolutely. Yeah. And people are starved for the authentic version of, of the people they interact with that they, they respond even well. To, they gravitate toward um so i mean the my mental health piece was a big a big part of it big big part of it yeah makes you a better designer too probably mm-hmm. 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 oh gosh um again more good stuff for um, i'm like my brain is going mm, future articles future articles um can, can we talk about that for a second to sure. be like about how it made me a better designer yeah because a big part of my work is around advocating for design equity. So I, I get met with a lot of times in the beginning, oh, what you're designing is too much for this demographic. These people don't deserve these nice mm-hmm. things, right? And I would get upset. I would get upset and mad. And anger in business is a personal emotion, right? If you read a return to love, it'll talk about this. So if I'm having a personal emotion in a business setting, do you know who I'm not serving? The people I am designing for. Right. Okay. So my mental health had to be sound because to advocate for others, it can't be about you and what you didn't get. Right. It's what do I need to do to make sure the design outcomes are equitable? Anger is not an emotion that can show up. So the mental health piece does allow me to design better and advocate better for the people and the communities that I work in. That's why it's important. What you're saying about people uh, that you are working with, probably saying people don't deserve this caliber of design. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would get angry at that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, how? I mean, that that just... Um, you know, that makes me cry. And that that's so uh, don't you have to get angry in order to like, no, then, you no, 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 this is what you have so to what do. What do you do? Yeah. You have to replace it with empathy. This is what we do. This is, this is a big part of what I do. All right. Um, you know, I, I don't believe, I know interior design is the greatest form of empathy in practice, mm-hmm. Right. So a lot of times we have to teach our partners, right? And we say partners and not clients. We have to teach them through empathy. So we do what I like to call empathy exercises. In a lot of affordable housing, you'll have a multi a multi-purpose room. And then this multi-purpose room, they want everything to happen from chaining to birthday parties to movies nights, everything, all types of functions. And then they'll say, the space can only have folding tables and chairs. And I say, okay. And then I say, well, you know, guys, I want everyone to close their eyes. I want everyone to close their eyes. And then I want you to tell me the type of space that you would want to have a birthday party for your kids in. And then they just start to describe this space. And they don't say things like, you know, Sherry Williams, color of the year, or this, this and that. They say it's bright, it's airy, it has soft seating, it's comfortable. They use a lot more adjectives, right? Okay. And then I will pull up a picture of a typical multi-purpose room. Folding tables and chairs, fluorescent lighting, VCT, no natural light. 
And then I'll say, is this a birthday party? A, a space you would want a birthday party for your kids in? And they go, no, no, no. And I say, well, why? Outside of the obvious, it's ugly. And they list all the reasons. And then I say to them, well, why would you want the 35-year-old mother of three who works at the Safeway to have a birthday party for her kids in this space? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, 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 they shouldn't. Well, yes, they do. Because this is a multi-purpose room from a project you just completed a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. And then they're just like shocked. And that is how I get them to change their 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 perception of who deserves what. Well, I made it about their loved one. Question. Is it because is it because your partners have this um past of of thinking with their purses? Like they think cheap design, you know, this is what you get for this budget. And are you tasked constantly with finding much more elevated solutions to, I don't even know what kind of budgets you work with in, in affordable housing, um, but it's, are they mostly like thinking with their pocketbooks? Is that why they come up with folding think, tables and chairs? I think it's their pocketbook and their bias, period. Mm-hmm. Pocketbooks and bias. I think it's pocketbooks, bias, and also their design professionals do not challenge them. And and it's it's so funny you mentioned budgets, right? If, you know, any multifamily project is going to have a budget. It's my job as a designer to design within that budget. And we don't use uh, cheaper material, right? We use the same products that you would see in a hotel, a class A uh, corporate office building, right? Um, we use the exact same stuff. We're just a lot more intentional, but we also advocate for transparency between the general contractor, the manufacturer, and what ha- what actually lands on the job. So we just finished a $75 million 12-story development in downtown DC, and we did not have to value engineer out a single design element, fixture, and or finish. Mm-hmm. We were intentional. We have a $20,000 custom backlit cool edge light fixture in the lobby of this space, illuminating some Tabalux metal grills, right? Because we designed with intentionality and within the budget. The budget isn't the issue. It's your desire to advocate and challenge your partner to design better and change their mindset. That's our job as designers. Hey, listeners, it's Jane Dagmy, Editor-in-Chief of Designers Today. I'm so glad you found our podcast. Did you also know that we print our magazine eight times a year and mail it to your home or office? Yes, interior design professionals can request a complimentary subscription by simply going to designerstoday.com and clicking on the button at the top that says subscribe. It's that simple. And while you're there, if you hit the newsletter tab, you can sign up for our weekly news as well as that of our sister publications. And now back to our show. I know that you don't just do um, affordable multifamily housing. That's not, Mm -hmm. but you know, you definitely um, do, do a lot in that area. But how did you 
what was your first job there? I mean, I guess it was your pro bono job, but like well, when you, so, when you really got no, no, no. hired, what was your first? At, so prior to doing, starting my business, I did work for a multifamily company in the Northern Virginia, Washington DC area where they did market rate and luxury multifamily. That's how I knew what that space was. Um, which made a lot more sense and made it easier for me to do that first multifamily pro bono project. Um, but the very first project determined by design dot was with a developer in DC called Dante's Partners. And it was a project called Gerard Tree Departments. Um, it was a 25 unit affordable housing project where 10 of the units were for chronically homeless people. And it's I, I love this story because we came to the pro the firm came to the project really late in the game, right? I had hounded this developer for a meeting and he finally gave me a shot. And they already had stamp permit drawings. Um, and we came in, did our concept, our storytelling, we presented it, we changed the space plan, everything finishes everything. And the developer was like, okay. And I remember the architect saying, how did you get them to make all those changes? Mm -hmm. I was like, I told a better story than you. Period. And I think that's, I, I sound like a broken record. It, if you have a story that's about people and community, your developer, whoever holds the purse strings, you can shift their mindset. You just have to want to. Um, and be relentless. But that was our first project. It finished in 2015. And this project that I just spoke about with the cool edge backlit light fixture, right. same developer, same developer. Um, and we grew with him, but we've been providing that same service of equitable design in affordable housing communities with this developer because um, we challenge and he knows I'm going to be intentional. But that was our first first project, first client, and now our longest, our longest client. Right, right. And when you work with certain developers, are you not allowed to work with other developers or do you like how does it work in your part of the design world? Oh, it's a great question. So, you know, I, I work with various developers from small to mid for profit, nonprofit my biggest thing was who is developing affordable housing and I want what communities they're doing it and are they creating equitable design outcomes? If not, I'm going to go after them. I'll send my intro email, my marketing material. Uh, it's like a sales call. Okay. I so go after them, them to pursue them and then, and then eventually educate them and, you know, see, let them see the, the yeah. light. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's it. And and the and the thing and this is, I don't want to say the hard part. I this is where the business like the if you really think about it, it's so strategic because a lot of design firms aren't soliciting these developers because they have this preconceived notion it's affordable housing. I'm not going to have big budgets. I'm not going to make any fees. So you have a whole demographic of possible clients or developers have that haven't been catered to by interior design professionals, right? right? Or the architects will say, these developers don't use interior designers, but why not? How do you know? Right. And I pursue them. How great. How great. It's, and yeah. 
So a question for um, possibly students that might be um, listening or other designers that are interested in in getting into this particular like sector of of design or sending you their resume. Ha ha. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What what should what do you read? What trade journals or what what to stay current with what's happening in in the industry? Oh, I love this question. This is the thing, right? Trade journals aren't talking about affordable, low income income housing. Okay. I I'm reading things from Hand, the Housing Association of Nonprofit Developers, ULI. I'm reading more about community development, real estate. I'm reading more about housing policy and agency. It doesn't sound sexy. Don't get me wrong, um, but because if I solely focus on industry, then I will be veiled in this thing that design is just about luxury and opulence and design, design the hotel, design the luxury building, design the spa. Industry is not catering to the demographic that I am. So I need to know what's happening there. Okay. And and then also mindful of fashion, textile, art local artists, makers, community organizations, what's happening in product design, right? Maker spaces in communities. That's where my focus is. And so for for that, because, you know, everybody's travel has been stilted this year. You know, I mean, what are some of the, you know, like interior design or, you know, what, what are some of the websites that you feel are the best at educating about materials and innovation and uh, I, so I, I think you you know this is why you know social media I think interior design magazine has an amazing um, Instagram IG feed metropolis magazine um, interiors and sources so I, I try to and even and even like you know some of the trade shows they've had to pivot. Um, but like boutique BDNY, mm-hmm. Neocon, ICFF, right? There's so much virtual online content. Um, I'll find myself kind of getting lost on those websites and looking at a lot of that online content to really get inspired about materials, products, and things like that. Definitely. I mean, it's like a rabbit hole, right? And then do you um are people visiting your um you're, you said you have a lot of remote workers and I don't know if you don't have the overhead of an office now, but do you keep materials on hand or oh, we, we, we keep select materials on hand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That will never go away. Right. Design is about touch and feel. So we, we do keep materials on hand, um, at our individual offices and locations, but it, it also at homes, right. Virtual home sure. offices, it allows us to be more intentional um, and strategic. And you have to put together, I mean, I would think not every vision board or if you're proposing something, you you need those materials in hand too, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, w- one of the, the resources that's been really great is Material Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can order some of everything quickly. So we've been sending a lot of stuff to our clients when we do presentations. So we do both virtual presentations. We have started um, doing, going back to some in-person presentations as well. Um, But we do a combination of virtual materials bank um, 
but it's we we've navigated we've navigated yeah so so that's exciting um that i was going to ask you and you sort of already brought it up but you know i know in the residential space you know designers have never been busier and i was wondering about the impact of of covid and if you are um reimagining spaces that you might like you know from something that you might have done in in 2019 or early 2020 now when you are starting a new project are you thinking differently about space and usage and well so so here's the I, the good and the bad thing about mm-hmm. it right our space our our partners have always wanted these spaces that could be all things so we've always had to operate in this hyper flexible multifunction multi-use space even when it comes down to materiality, everyone wants things that are scrubbable and cleanable. And this is going to sound a little crass, but this is how our clients talk about it. Like our partners, it's like, these people are poor, they're tear it up. So it needs to be durable, be cleanable and wipe it down. Right. So we've always had to operate under these constraints that more folks are operating under now because they want to wipe things down. So mm-hmm. we have not seen a real shift in what we do or how we do it, because we've always had to do that. Got it. Got it. But we're busier than ever. So I'm glad you said in case someone wants to send me their resume, because we we need one more team member. <laughs> do you do you do internships? Have you ever done them? And do you think they'll be difficult with with sort of, you know, social distancing? So we have a we have a great intern right now who's in upstate New York. Um, I found her through a colleague and she has been, and I think for interns, it is, you know, there was a little trepidation, like, how is this going to be for her? Is it going to be engaging? Um, But she's enjoying it and she's really started to kind of come out of her shell a little bit, but so far so good. It feels like you've got a mission to educate about design equity. Like you're sort of you're rolling out some sort of program. Mm-hmm. Did I understand mm-hmm. you correctly? And can yes. you explain? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So we we are creating this program about how to implement equitable design strategies, right? And that is pretty much giving our secret sauce of what we do at Determined by Design, how we create elevated design outcomes with a mission. And it might be like, well, why are you telling everyone how to do what you do? Because everyone can eat from the table and make money. I am more concerned. And this is when I think about COVID, right? When I think about people who have been quarantining in public or low-income housing built 50 years ago, if I don't teach other designers how to do this, when the next pandemic happens 10, 15, 20 years from now, there will be people quarantining in inadequate living conditions. That cannot happen again. So if I need to show you what I, what we're doing, how we're making money, being successful and creating equitable design solutions, then let's do it. Mm-hmm. So that's one program we're rolling out. And and how will that be? Will that be like you would come into so an, an it office? To, yeah. It was it was supposed to be an in-person, mm-hmm. an in-person um session followed by two follow-ups um 
virtually, but obviously because of COVID, we're pivoting a little bit. We have also actually been providing the same service for our development partners, Mm -hmm. right? So they know how to or set expectations of their design for architects and designers if they're not using the Determined by Design. Some of those we have done in person. We've also done them for organizations like enterprise um, communities, um, the housing authorities, HGA. So that's kind of we're, we're pivoting a little bit to make it more virtual, but it will go back to this more in-person model um, hopefully here by the end of next year. Thank goodness for virtual and for Zoom and packaging things up because, you know, it's it's a really good backup to in-person. I mean, it saves a lot of time. It saves a lot of money. And it's not the end-all be-all, but it's a good thing, right? I mean, it it is a good thing. It is a good thing. And another thing that we're rolling out specific to students and I'll say emerging designers, right? Yep. You know, there is a disconnect between what happens or what they learn in school to what they really need to be um, focusing on in their in the first three to five years of their profession. Right. Yeah. And we're rolling out this program called a determined step. And it is a finishing school, for lack of a better word, for the emerging design professional who wants to do impact-based work. And it's a whole person approach to professional development, design equity, mentorship, um, and career guidance. Mm. Because what what I'm finding is the cool thing is this next wave of designers, they want to do impactful work. They want to change lives through design. Right. Right. I've I've heard plenty of them say, you know, I've got it. I, I got to work at the big firm and I was just designing a fancy class A office building for Google. And that didn't mean anything for me. They want meaningful work, but they don't know how to advocate for that, how to use their voice. Right. Uh, they don't know how to basically don't be break like space plans creatively because school is about the outcome and the grade, not about the people. So we're helping them shift that mindset, find their voice so they can create a more impactful career. And then also really know how to, how do you advocate for a salary, right? right. How, no, no one talks about in a very candid kind of way. Nobody talks about this, especially women, right? Yep. So it'll, you know, basic things like professional, how to dress professionally. Right. And, and Again, who that, is this? Who are you doing this with? So we we will offer this program two ways. We'll offer it um, through educational institutions. I've probably spoken at more than 25 universities across the U.S. So what we'll start to do is we will introduce this program to juniors going into their sophomores, going into their junior year, because what happens is you look up, you graduate, and then you're trying to figure it out. Right. Right. So we'll offer it through educational institutions as a scholarship or students can pay to enroll. We are going to start partnering with some professional associations like ASID, IIDA, offering this class to be distributed at their chapter levels or um, to emerging professionals. Mm-hmm. And this program is envis- it's supposed to, it is a three to five year program from the enrollment. So we stay with, in these major milestones 
graduation, getting the job, your first your first job, transitioning to your second one, asking for that raise, asking for that promotion, asking for more responsibility. Right. Right. It's kind of this embedded mentorship program from college all the way to the first your first five years. Mm. That sounds great. I want to go back and do it. <laughs> I want to enroll everything. Gosh, that's exciting. Thank you. It, yeah. And this is what happened. I have so many mentees that I was like, are they, are you guys not getting this in school? And they're like, no. I'm like, wait, what's happening? Um, are you, is no one encouraging you? Telling, no, no, no. It's like, okay. Uh, again, I need everyone to know their voice matters, who they are matter. This is how, I, I'm telling people all the things I wish someone would have told me. Sure. Period. Yeah. So I have um, it pieced together, you know, through again the different times I've heard you speak, and I might, and I'm not a great mathematician, okay, but I I believe that you are, and you know that you are not quite forty. Am That's I correct? Some- I'm 39. Okay. Okay. I did good math. I did good math. Um, So my question to you is, and I think, I mean, you've got a lot on your plate right now and you've got this beautiful vision for the future. Um, But like the next 10 years, like, I don't know what you've heard from your girlfriends and, you know, and I say that because we talk more about like the forties, but what are you looking forward to most in your forties? Oh my God. <laughs> You're probably going, I'm not looking forward to anything now. Yeah, what do you, I'm just curious. What? I am looking forward to, oh my God, first of all, just traveling, first, mm. frankly. Um, but I think that's all. Um, continuing to live my life unapologetically. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. Find it, finding love, however that is supposed to, to look for me, a, a life partner. Mm-hmm. Um, my my business will be self-sustaining without Kia. It, you know, I'll always be uh, the founder and the leader of, of Determined by Design. But my 40s will have given me the liberty to do more education and teaching and advocacy and policy work. Right. Um, and then... Finally, shift my focus to disrupting the way prison institutions are designed. Because mm. remember, that's where I started. Yes, that is where I started. And my undergraduate thesis was a male prison facility. When all my 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 classmates were doing hotels and stuff like that, I designed a prison. Wow. I will disrupt that industry. I have two more questions for you. Yes. Do you still dance? um uh formally no in in my living room absolutely um and as it's so funny if anyone goes to my instagram you will you will find some videos of me dancing blissfully living my best life in my living room um that is that is how i dance oh okay i love that and i'm gonna you know i'm going to your instagram oh my god please do um, the other thing, my last question, gosh, it could go on and on. Um, okay. If we were on a road trip, someplace warm with the windows wide open, hair <gasps> flying about, what song would we be listening to? <gasps> oh my, oh, oh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Mm. I know there's probably like 10, but 
You can give me okay. one or two. Mm-hmm. One, okay. Um, this girl is on fire by Alicia Keys. Yep. <laughs> I can hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Awesome. I can just hear it. Hands oh. up through the um, yes. sunroof. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, we're in a convertible. We're yeah, in a convertible. okay. That's, that's fine. That's fine. I always, you know, I love those questions because it's like, what makes you just kind of like feel that sort of unstoppability, you know, like that, just like I'm in it all the way, you know? Oh yes, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, I, I always tell, um, folks like, like the, 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 if you, when you go to my Instagram, you see these like these videos of me dancing and it's not like cute. Like it's not like these TikTok curated moves. It's like, really, are you, are you, are you putting this out in the world? And like, yeah, because life is just about being comfortable in your own skin, period. Um, If people can see me successful doing that, then they know they can do it too. Don't take yourself too seriously, ever. Thanks so much for listening to Seb. I sincerely hope you got something of value from the podcast that feeds your brain and fills your heart. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you're in the interior design trade and related industries and would like to sign up for a complimentary subscription to the printed or digital magazine, visit designerstoday.com right now and sign up. Until next time.